Amen, amen. How's everybody doing? Great, good. I'm, feel, I'm feeling awesome. So glad you guys are here this morning on this beautiful, beautiful day. Who's just really excited to be here? Hey, one thing, okay, a couple of you, great. Um, awesome. One thing I wanted to mention, because I heard some, some folks um, talking about, you know, where am I going to sit? I'm having trouble. See, for, for some reason, the front row is just always open. And so like, for some of you in, in the future, you know, if you're, you're worried about being a place to sit, it, it's okay. The front row is safe. It's a safe place. I used to hit Dylan every other week or so, but I don't do that anymore. I, don't, I haven't done that in a while. Maybe we should bring that back. That was fun. But, but, um, but just, we, we have plenty of seats. They're just right, right here. Um, but, uh, but, but wanted to start a series today that we're going to do for the next few weeks called On Your Mark. And have you, ever, have you ever been in a season of your life? Thanks, guys. Man, that's just awesome. Man, they listen. That's great. Um, have you ever been in a part, point in your life or a season in your life where you've gone back to the start? Where you're like, okay, things have kind of gotten off track here. Things are, things are a little, little different than, than they, they were in the beginning, than that maybe they were supposed to be. And so I've got to go back to the start. I've got to go back to the beginning. In fact, a lot of people um, counsel each other, you know, in ministry positions or pastor roles, you know, when, when frustrations come, when burnout starts to, to creep in um, and things like that in ministry, um, people say, go back to your call. Go back to that moment when God called you. And for me, for me, I can remember a couple pivotal moments when God called me, like when the time that God called me to Maine um, a few years ago, eight, eight, eight and a half years ago or so, I was standing in a, in a, a, a church lobby in Orlando, Florida, and I had two conversations with two guys for about an hour, and at the end of it, I knew, I knew that God was calling me to Maine. I knew it. I knew that God was calling me to Maine. Ten months later, in January of all times, my wife and two kids at the time, and I moved to, to Maine. And, and, and the day we, we moved on a Wednesday, and on Thursday it snowed eight inches, and people said, you need to rake your roof. <laughs> and at that moment, I had to go back to my call. Then when God called me here, because growing up in North Kakalaki, I had never heard of raking roofs. Except with leaves and gutters. I had never heard of a snowblower. I would heard of plows only because my county had two plows for the whole county. I had to go back to my call. I was at a race yesterday. It was kind of fun. And, and uh, there was this guy that, that, that did a much longer race than I did. But I was hanging out at the finish line and I was watching some people finish. And, and, and this guy had just done over 30 miles up and down mountains and a bunch of obstacles and stuff. And, and, and he's, he's coming over this A-frame climb and he goes up and he's coming down. And, and, and what I found out, I confirmed later... Um, that it was his wife standing next to me. Um, she shouted at the top of her lungs as her husband is coming down this. She's like, way to go. I would marry you all over again. Talk about going back to the beginning. And so being the type of person that I am, I, would, I didn't want to let that go. And so he kind of went through, he came out, and I walked over to them. I said, hey, Buddy, I just want you to know, when you're coming down that A-frame, she said she would marry you all over again. 
And he kind of chuckled, and I said, I just happen to be a pastor, so we can make this happen right now. If you want to take her up on that. He didn't think it was that funny, but I'm glad you did. And, uh, and, but going back to the beginning, going back to the fun, you know, we've been on a fun journey here for the last few months, and I've had a great time, in essence, going back to the beginning of Summit, going back to the beginning of how Summit began. Because see, here's the, here's the thing, we have some hopes for you, and that's what I want the message to be this morning, that as, as, as your pastors and as your elder team, we, we see um, kind of four marks on this Summit for you, so you can kind of look at the next 10 or 11 weeks um, as a bunch of vision messages, because we're, we're going in a direction. I was wrestling over the last few weeks and maybe even a couple months on, man, where does God want us to go in the fall? Where does God want us to go in the fall? And Monday morning, I just had a bunch of clarity and uh, just really felt like I heard from God, had a major God moment and, um, and, and wanted to preach on purpose and for a purpose. And so we're going back to the beginning and we're going to talk about our summit. We're going to talk about our spiritual summit here at Summit. See what I did there? And so I want to talk this morning about the four invitations of Jesus that really mark what our heart is for you here. And the first one comes from the book of John, chapter 1. And so if you have your Bibles turned there, we're going to look at four different passages, so don't feel like you need to follow along. Maybe you jot these references down and just follow along on the screen for the sake of time. I don't want you to get frustrated if you're like me and you're trying to flip through and follow so that you can underline in your Bible. You can do that later. But in John chapter 1, starting in verse 35, we read, The next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, what are you, where are you staying? Verse 39, He said to them, Come, and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. And if you skip over to verse 46, which isn't going to be on the screen, but it says there, Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. So we could spend all day on any one of these four markers, but we're just going to kind of, kind of um, hit you from the 40,000 foot view on these. But the first invitation that we see from Jesus to His disciples was in response to them saying, Where are you staying? He said, Come and you will see. The first invitation we see from Jesus is come and see. Come and see. And I want you to see, I want you to see this morning that when Jesus says come and see and these disciples came and saw, their response was to go out and spread that into their community, into their world, and invite others to come and see. That's what we see in Nathaniel. And this first invitation of Jesus is to come and see. It's where we say no. Now, now I want you to get this. So if you're taking notes, write this down. But it's where we say no to saving ourselves and where we say yes to trusting Jesus with our lives. 
It's where we say no to saving ourselves and where we say yes to trusting Jesus with our lives. It's kind of, it, it, um, it's kind of like uh, where we say no to saving ourselves. One of the biggest problems I see in, in culture when it comes to Jesus and our lives with Christ is that our culture, for, for us, it kind of teaches you we've become our own God. We need, we supply. We want, we get. We're hungry, we, f- we, we get fed. We feed ourselves, right? And we've become our own God to the sense that, well, oh, you're telling me I need this relationship with God. Here's the reality. I don't need anything, right? I mean, how many of you are like that? Don't tell me what I need. I know what I need. I know what's good for me. I know what's good for my family. I know what's good. And the issue with that is when we buy into that mentality, we don't see our desperate need for God. We don't see our desperate need for a Savior. We buy into this mentality that, oh, I can do this. I can do this. I bought into that mentality, as I mentioned, uh, back you know, uh, eight, eight and a half years ago when I'm standing in the lobby of this First Baptist Church, Orlando, Florida, it's a giant church, having conversations with these two guys and, 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 and you know, them, them telling me and, and driving home from Orlando back to North Carolina and thinking about pastoring a church in Maine, which was so foreign to me. And I thought to myself in that moment, I thought, I could pastor a church in Maine. I could do that. It's not very difficult. Pastoring a church. I can do that. I can swing that. That, that would be easy for me. I, you know what? I'm probably the answer for the spiritual darkness in Maine. Like, you bring me up there, things are going to shift immediately. We'll have a mega church in no time. You guys are laughing, but man, these thoughts were crossing my mind as I'm driving up I-95 back to Charlotte, North Carolina. And then it took us nine months to convince um, formerly uh, South Coast to hire me. A lot of money, and um, I'm just kidding, <laughs> just kidding, and and then I got here in in January, and it took about three months for me to realize I have no clue what I'm doing. Some of you are laughing because you were here in those times, and you knew this kid has no clue what he's doing, and it hasn't gotten much better. <laughs> Except for the fact, except for the fact that I realized the mentality that, oh yeah, I can come do this. I can come pastor a church in Maine. I can shepherd people. I can preach every week. I can prepare messages. I can go to the hospital. I can do this. I can do that. I can be the answer for people. You catch that? I can't do anything. Let me make sure that's clear for you. I'm not your answer. But it came to the place where I had to realize that if anything, was gonna, if anything good was going to come out of my ministry, it wasn't going to come from me. It was going to come from the God in me. It was going to come from the God through me. 
which is very freeing. And I still screw things up. But man, if anything good has come from our ministry, my ministry, it's God. And so this come and see mark on this journey to our summit personally, and, and I'm sharing personal experience from church, but I'm, I'm talking about us personally, that, that, that are this, this first come and see mark, it, it comes at the place where we say no to saving ourselves, no to being the answer, and yes to trusting Jesus. Number two, number two, if you look at Matthew um, chapter 4, Verses 18 through 22. I love this passage. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. They took some time, they prayed about it, they fasted, they sought counsel, then they left their nets and followed him. That's not what it says, right? Verse 20. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James the son of Zebedee and John his brother in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. And he called to them, undoubtedly saying a similar thing, follow me immediately. They left the boat and their father and followed him. The second mark on this journey to our spiritual summit is follow me. We have come and see, then we have the invitation of Jesus to follow Him. Follow me. Now I want to get to some of that passage, but just for the sake of this, for the sake of your notes, this is where we say no to staying the same and we say yes to growth. This is where we say no to staying the same and yes to growth. I love in that passage there where Jesus says, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. And immediately, immediately they left their nets and followed him. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. I've shared the story of Francis Chan quite often. He uses the illustration where he's standing in the kitchen and he tells his daughter to go clean her room. A couple hours later, his daughter comes back down the stairs and says, Dad, I want you to know I thought about what you said. I prayed about what it would look like to clean my room. I read in the Greek of what clean your room literally means from the Greek text. I've got some friends coming over in just a little bit. We're going to have a Bible study up in my room where we're going to go around in the circle and we're going to talk about what it would actually look like if I cleaned my room. And Francis Chan said, you know the issue with that? She didn't clean her room. There are many of us. There are many of us that are at this place of contentment. God has big plans for us. God wants us to do something. And the fact of the matter is, you probably even know what it is. But you can call it lack of faith comfort, whatever you want to call it. And we're still hanging on to our nets. And I love the picture of when Jesus called these disciples, they dropped their nets immediately and they followed Him. They dropped their nets completely and they followed Him. Well, Jesus, Jesus, can you just give me a job description? 
Can you just tell me a little bit more about the expectations of following you and what that's going to look like? What's the time frame? What's the time commitment? When, when will that be over? You know, what, can, you just, can you give me a little more detail? Can you tell me how you're going to provide for me? Can you tell me where my, my food's going to come from, my needs are going to come from? Can you give me some answers here? Because I need to have some security and some safety if I'm going to really follow you. Drop their nets. Followed him. It's where we say no to staying the same and yes to growth. Now, I'm not saying that you be irresponsible. But I am saying that we could use a little more faith in our lives when it comes to following Jesus. Man, I'm sorry. i got to share this. I was uh, at a dinner last Friday night and I was sitting next to this guy from India who radically gave his life to Jesus. He's now a pastor down in Boston. When he gave his life to Jesus, he was kicked out of his home in India. Kicked out of his home, banned from the family. And this missionary took him in, taught him English, led him to the Lord, sent, sent him to the state so that he could go to seminary, so that, he, so that he could go to Bible college. Graduated Bible college and now pastoring a church down in, in, uh, in Boston, church plant for, um, uh, for his people, sorry. Um, and as I was talking to this man the other night, I was inspired. Because four times a year, he goes back to India. Has to have 24-hour protection on his life when he's preaching the gospel to these churches where he could literally get taken, you know, prisoner for what he's doing. And as I sat there listening to that guy share, I got my picture with him because I was just so inspired I wanted to remember his face so I could pray for him. Number one, I wanted to go to India. But number two, I thought, man, I'm really comfortable. That's radical faith. That's faith. When's the last time I relied on God in a way that He is on a daily basis? Come and see, follow me. It's where we say no to staying the same, where we say yes, yes to stretching, where we say yes to growth. Number three, Mark chapter 3, verses 13 through 15 says, And he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve whom he also named disciples, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. I want you to get that. He appointed twelve so that they might be with him, and he would send them out to preach. Come and see, follow me. The third marker on our spiritual summit is be with me. Be with me. It's where we say no to distractions and where we say yes to serving and leading. It's where we say no to distractions and where we say yes to serving and leading. Now, I want, I want to get something out there really quickly, and, and I'm not just specifically talking about Summit Church. I'm talking about the Church of today. Okay, the Big C Church. 
Now, what this doesn't mean, what this marker doesn't mean, this be with me, and where it says yes to serving and leading, and leading, the temptation there would be to think, oh, okay, so every leader within the church, every, you know, every person that has an office, every, every person that leads a ministry, every person that greets and hands out bulletins or teaches a, teaches a kid's class or does this or does that or leads a small group, they're serving, they're leading, they must be be with me. Not necessarily. Not necessarily. Not necessarily. You may be sitting here this morning, you may be in a leadership position, and you may sit and say, well, man, I'm, I'm leading, I'm serving in this way, but I'm, I'm, I'm probably more of a follow me still, because I've still got some things, I've still got some distractions in my life that creep in, because those distractions are real. I, I, I was saying in the first service, I probably get five to ten emails a day, no exaggeration, of people trying to sell me a church model. Hey, buy into this church model, and you'll have a thousand people in your church by Christmas. I don't want a thousand people in our church by Christmas. That sounds really terrible. I mean, I want a thousand people to meet Jesus by Christmas, but they can go to other churches. Like, that sounds awesome, you know? Those are just not ready. I I mean, God's not going to give us more than we... Anyway, but... You get that picture, okay? Like, like that sales pitch is a little flawed to me. Um, but you get the point. There's plenty of distractions out there, right? Hey, do this and you'll get this. Hey, buy this and in and, and, and six weeks, boom, right? And so we have servants and leaders who are super faithful, trying really hard, that haven't mastered this yet. He called them so that they would be with Him, so that He could send them out to preach. What a beautiful picture. It's where we say yes to serving and leading, where we say no to distractions. Number four. John chapter 15, verse 4 is where we find this one. Jesus says, Abide in me and I in you. Pastor Ian did a message on this a few weeks ago. It was beautiful. Abide in me and I in you as the branch cannot. Everybody say cannot. Good, you're still with me. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. The fourth marker on our summit is remain in me. Come and see, follow me, be with me, remain in me. Other translations read this verse like this. Remain in me and I will remain in you as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it remains in the vine. The fourth invitation of Jesus is to remain in me. It's where we say no to ourself and to our desires, to our agendas that we may push or, or, or pull, or the, our preferences when it comes to, to different things. It's where we say no to ourself and our desires and where we say yes to spiritual parenting. Now we're going to talk a lot about spiritual parenting over the next few weeks, but basically spiritual generations where we see something that doesn't happen super often today in our churches, um, but where we see something that, that comes directly from Scripture where older men are teaching younger men and older women are teaching younger women. The things of God. That's spiritual parenting. 
So this remain in me, this fourth marker, um, is, 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 is our heart for each person that is a part of, of, of Summit, for each person that calls Jesus their Lord. Because I believe it's the point of Jesus. Go and make disciples of all nations. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Teaching them, teaching them, hello, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And lo, I'm with you always, even to the ends of the age. Spiritual parenting. See, remain in me comes at this place where our music, the preaching, everything that happens in and around this place, you realize it's not about you. In fact, I love Rick Warren's book, The Purpose Driven Life, the first line. He says, it's not about you. You realize when you come into this place and you're like, oh, I didn't really like the worship set. The message didn't really speak to me. Sorry. But it's not for you. Our worship from this place, our, our music, when we prepare messages, our number one focus is to glorify God. And so if you walk out of here and you say, eh, that wasn't really for me, chances are it was more for you than you're willing to realize. Our summit, at summit, the whole, the thing that we're trying to hit the mark on, the mark for us, when we reach the top is disciple-making disciples. That's our goal. That's our summit. That's where we were born out of. That's what we were born out of is a heart for disciple-making disciples that we would see spiritual generations. Well, that's awesome, Travis, but how? How do I get there? How do I go from marker to marker? I'm glad you asked. Two things. Number one, time. If you were to draw a graph, right, this 90-degree graph, I'm going to do it backwards so we can try to see this and try to picture this, okay? you got, you got uh, come and see, follow me, be with me, remain in me, right? And those are the four markers. And at the summit, you've got a disciple-making disciple, right? On one side of that graph is time. On one line, that's time, right? And as our time increases, guess what? Our, our relationship deepens. What's needed for a relationship to go deeper? Time. Intentional time. We're going to talk for the rest of our time about these two things. And then, and then number two, the second, the second need, the second line is commitment. Commitment to the things of God. Commitment to growth. Commitment to these things. And so Pastor Russ is going to come and share this because, because here's the reality. Many of us think, oh, well, well, if I'm doing a steady climb, it should just be one straight line. It should just be one perfect straight line. But the reality is we're going to climb a little bit and we're going to come down. And we're going to climb a little bit and we're going to come down. And we're going to climb a little bit and we're going to come down. Can I just set you free this morning? That is okay. 
many of us experience our deepest levels of shame when we were here, but now we're here. I believe God never wastes an experience. So I want to pray for, for Russ as he comes and talks about how to use our time, how to use our commitment very, very practically. Take notes. This is, this is unbelievably beneficial. For four years, I served as an associate pastor of a church, and I was never once, this was part of my call to Maine, I was never once, never once, everybody say never once. Exactly. I was never once asked about my daily time with God. I was never once. I had people supervising me. I had people holding me accountable. Not one person ever came to me and said, hey, tell me what you're getting out of the Word today. Tell me what you're getting out of the Word today. When's the last time you opened your Bible except for preaching? And so Russ is going to talk about that this morning. Father, I pray that you speak through Russ for the rest of our time. Thank you for his commitment to these things. And I pray that you use them mightily in this time. In Jesus' name, amen. As Travis said, it's, it's fascinating to me, and depending on who you believe and who you listen to, Anywhere from 60 to 80% of the pastors in our country today have no idea how to spend time alone with God. So I'd like to invite you to what my quiet time typically looks like. Sorry. Hello? Oh, hi, Travis. Is this how your quiet time looks like? That's how mine usually starts. Some distraction of some sort, whether it's on a telephone call or whether it's on an email that comes in, and immediately I find myself on somebody else's agenda for my time with God. Step one, please find a place that's quiet and alone and unplugged. If you're going to get time alone with God and good time alone with God where you can actually hear His voice, I recommend that you find some place alone. I'd like to start here, and this will rub you the wrong way. I'm sorry about that to a degree. Not sorry in another way, but here you go. Hebrews 5, verse 12. In fact, though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's Word all over again. You need milk, not solid food. Anyone who lives on milk, being still an infant, is not acquainted with the teaching about righteousness. But solid food is for the mature who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. Everybody ready to go? This doesn't come naturally. If I said to you, hey, by the way, one of the things from, from Mark 3 that you just saw, one of the chief roles of a disciple is to spend time with. Jesus called 12 that they would be apostles, that they would be with him. As a disciple today, are we with Jesus? How often? What does it look like? Have we taken the time to actually open up the Scriptures, sit down in a place of prayer, and interact as a disciple of Jesus? If we are not spending time with the Master, we may not be the type of disciple we might think we are. Here's the difficulty. This comes across as judgment. This comes across as frustration. This comes across as, oh, by the way, another thing to the to-do list that I got to add, and now all of a sudden joy is gone, and that's not what I'm here to do. You see, because the reality is it wasn't until I was almost 40 years old that somebody sat down with me and said, hey, by the way, how's your time going? Same thing that Travis just described. See a pattern here, by the way? 
Somebody sat down with me and showed me and taught me what it means to open up the Scripture and feed for myself instead of this thing that we do that some authors would call the telephone game approach to getting time alone with God, and it involves listening to a podcast, reading somebody else's book, and doing all these other things, none of which are bad, but if they are primary, then we are not hearing from God directly. We are hearing from somebody else and their translation of what God is teaching them. And while you're going to get a little bit of that this morning, and I'm sorry to say that in most places on Sunday morning, because somebody gets up in front and teaches like this, please, I'm begging you, I'm begging you, do not rely on this as a place to be fed by the words of our God who loves us and cares for us. If you are unsure this morning what it looks like to have a quiet time, what it looks like to be alone with God, that is what we're going to do here for the next few minutes as we finish up is we're going to take a look at how to spend some time alone with God that you can do. There's not a seminary degree required. There's not a bunch of things that you have to, you know, go to school for, and you have to be so super smarter. If you can't do these things, you can't do this, you can't do this. I would even teach my daughter this. She hates me right now, and I'm so okay with that. So let's dive in. I want to invite you into my quiet time for the last 10 or 12 days show you some of my notes, some of the things that I've written to you, but I want to teach you a process. There's four steps in the process, okay? And if you want to make a word out of it, it sounds, it sounds like an awesome word. It's called oika. Cool word? O-I-C-A, observation, interpretation, cross-reference, maybe correlation, and application. And we're going to step through these four things. And it's funny because in giving this a real practical way to go, it just so happens that my experience over the last few, a few weeks of studying this has been directly about this and what it looks like to be fed by God himself. And so I'd like you to turn to Psalm 23, which you've probably never heard of before. Not a real famous place. One of my favorite things all time is taking things that I think I know and looking at them again and watching God go, <laughs> <laughs> Let me show you something. Psalm 23. I've been here for about 10 days, maybe 12 days. This is how far I am. The first thing I want to ask of you is that you slow down. Got to read the Bible in a year. Got to get through it all. Got to do the whole thing. Da, 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 da. Never spend a moment thinking about what it is that we've heard or read. But I checked the box. I'm not sure that's the type of communion God has for us. Observation, I just want you to see what's written. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. What do you see? See, we immediately want to jump to what does this mean? And if we do that, we miss some of the really cool things that God can teach out of this. What do you see? Who's, the Lord is whose shepherd here? Everybody says mine, right? The Lord's my shepherd here. And I want, you to, I want to pause there because that's true, and I'll explain that more, more thoroughly in a moment. 
But that's not what you see here. What you see here is that the Lord is David's shepherd. Do you see what I did? This is what it says versus what it means. It's David that's writing. The Lord is my shepherd, says David. So there's a difference between what we read and what we see and what, we, what it means versus what it actually says. And we'll get, we'll get more into that as we go. I shall not want. Dave, go ahead and switch that through. These are my observations. Things that I saw just from reading these verses. Now, please keep in mind, I did not do this all in one sitting. This is a number of days in a row that has kind of been bashed together, and so things look a little scattered and haggard, perhaps. But these are taken in small chunks. And if you want to observe what it actually says, answer the following questions. Who, what, where, when, why, and how? As it says it directly in the text. So here's what it says. Who? The Lord. He's the main character of this. And you may notice in your Bibles that this is in all caps. There's a question coming there later. What? The Lord is David's shepherd. The Lord is the shepherd, not David. It's he, the Lord, that makes David lie down. It's he, the Lord, that leads David and restores David's soul. Where does he lead him? Green pastures and still water. When? Now. Present tense. It's not something he used to do. It's not something he will do. It's something he does. It's ongoing. Some other things I noticed that David shall not want that the pastures are green, the water is still, it's the shepherd that restores, and that David is the follower of the shepherd. Out of observation, this is what I see. I see all the places in my life regularly where I decide that I'm the shepherd. What does it look like? Every time I'm the shepherd, it's the place where all of a sudden I've decided that what I want to do and the things that I'm doing and the places that I find satisfaction and enjoyment and all these other things are where I step in and say, I know what's best for me right now. And I end up filling myself with Netflix or, 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 or push it down the line, folks. Work a little harder, work a few more hours, get some overtime in. Bury myself in this for a while. I have a tractor that didn't start a few weeks ago. I spent some time working on that. Did that restore my soul? <laughs> nope. <laughs> that thing almost got set on fire on purpose. But I guess that's not okay. Where do I replace God in this equation with something of myself? My own decisions, my own thinking. Moving on. Here's where we move into interpretation. And as I already said, this is what it says versus what it means. And so let me see if I can give you a couple of things as to what it means versus what it says. This is the I. This is interpretation. This is what does it mean. And this is a place to ask questions. If you're reading through Scripture and you don't have any questions, good for you. I have tons. So here's where we went with my interpretation of this passage. If these things apply to David, then they apply to me. They apply to me because I'm part of the family of Jesus, a descendant of David. And therefore, these things that are promised to David by God are imputed to me. That's not always true. It's true here. Notice my question on the top. Why is Lord in all caps? Does that drive anybody crazy? You ever notice that in the Old Testament? There's a lot of times where the word Lord appears in all caps. Dig into your scriptures. You'll notice it. God, the word Lord appears in all caps. And the reason for it is actually the name of God. 
It's Yahweh here. It is the God who said to Moses when he was in the burning bush, and Moses said, well, who should I say that you are? He says, I am. And so the two translations here for this are I am or you are, depending on who is speaking. This is I am who is the shepherd. Skipping down, pastures and water for eating and drinking. So my interpretation here is if I'm to eat and to drink from them, I have to follow the shepherd. And that this is a spiritual nourishing. Here is the greatest revelation that you will hear today on a spiritual level. In this passage, David is not a literal sheep. Tremendous insight out of the scriptures. That's free today. But seriously, this is a spiritual nourishing that we're talking about. David's not a literal sheep in this. He's actually talking about a spiritual relationship. Eating and drinking from the Word are are from the Word and through the Bible and through prayer. Time alone with God is where we are fed. It's the Lord who restores my soul. I don't do it myself. And then I ask this question, because I'm a pretty bright guy. I do this occasionally for a living. What's the soul according to the Bible? I think I know, but as I thought about it, I wasn't quite sure how to answer that. And so that became a question that I asked. And do, do me a favor as you go through the scriptures, please ask questions. Please ask questions. So let's see if we can find some answers. How do we do that? Let's see, number three. This is through cross-referencing. Where else in the Bible does it talk about this? And as I heard the shepherd story, and I'm not going to read this whole passage for you, Jesus talking about himself as the good shepherd. I am using the same name of God intentionally to make a claim about who he was. I am the good shepherd. Some of the job descriptions of a shepherd that come out of here, four of them that I found. Shepherd's job is to know the sheep, to feed the sheep, to lead the sheep, and to protect the sheep. As I may have mentioned, I'm not the shepherd. What's my job? My job is the sheep. Based on that job description of the shepherd, my job is to be known. My job is to be fed. My job is to be led or to follow. And my job is to allow myself to be protected. All of these require an intentional act of humility, an intentional act of surrender in order to place God at his rightful place as the shepherd, me at my rightful place as the sheep, so that I can be filled. So that's the shepherd. What's next? I looked up Psalm 65 because I saw the word pasture there, and it says, the pasture of the wilderness overflow, and yada, yada, yada. The problem is, whoops, this is not the right word. This word for pasture is different than the other word that's used in Psalm 23. How do I know that? And this is where it gets scary because all of a sudden it's like, I don't know Hebrew. How am I supposed to figure this out? Anybody ever seen one of these before? Seminary students call it the exhausting concordance. This is an exhaustive concordance. This is every word that's in the scriptures. If you want to get an idea on any word that is in the Bible and where else it appears in the scriptures, open this. You know why I use this? Because it forces my phone to go someplace else. 
It forces my computer to go someplace else, my tablet to go someplace else, every other place that I'm connected with the world to go someplace else, otherwise Travis calls me. If you know how to use a dictionary, you can use a concordance. This is the amount of skill it took to figure this out. I opened up this and I read the word pasture. I, I found it, it's alphabetical. Found the word pasture. Next to it, there's a number that talks about which Hebrew word is used, and then you can look up in the back by number what the word means. But the word that's translated pasture here is a different word that's in Psalm 23. In fact, the word that here in Psalm 23 for pasture is only found four times in the entire Old Testament. Do you know how I know that? I looked in there. I did not go to my seminary professor and say, hey, by the way, how do I figure this out? Somebody showed me how to do it. I really want you to hear that this, as a priest, as part of the royal priesthood of God, you are not required to go to get a seminary degree in order to spend time with your Savior. You can open up the Bible for yourself and pull rich, amazing things out of it, but it takes time and commitment to do it. Then the question becomes, is it worth it? I know we're busting for time, so let me go. So the word I was looking for only appears four times in the Old Testament, and it, that word for pasture, it's figurative, and it's a place of thriving, right? A place where things are just booming and good, okay? Three of them are found in the book of Joel, which is coincidentally as a result of this where I'm probably going to go next to do a study just because I found this fascinating. Twice it's used, once for locusts coming and destroying the things that were good, once for armies that are coming and destroying things that are good, and catch this the third time, is what God will restore as a result of the confession of the people is the place of flourishing. How cool is that? That's the third place it's used. Anybody ever seen a picture of Israel? Do you picture green pastures? There's no green it's a brown country. And yet here David is talking about green pastures. And so I did something else that really requires a lot of skill. I pulled out a commentary on this 23rd Psalm, which is just a book that somebody else wrote. I did the same thing that I just warned against, but catch which is primary and which is secondary. Thank you. Okay? Commentator said this, if you're looking in Israel for a place of green pasture, the only place that it occurs is a place where a shepherd has been completely intentional with creating a thriving place for the sheep to be. A place of true nourishment. Do you know why the sheep are made to lie down there? Because they go in and they eat. And once they eat, they lie down. Do you know why they lie down? Sheep are ruminant. They lie down to chew on what they've been fed, to chew on it over and over and over again and to find rest there as they digest what they've been fed from their master. How cool is that? One of the jobs of the shepherd is to feed, but he also provides a place for us to rest and a place for us to engage. Uh, da, 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 as a reference, the pastor restoration here in Tony, okay, good, we covered that. What's next? Leads me beside still water. So you can imagine I got really excited. I got to go find out what waters means now. Grab my book. Got to find out what waters mean. You know how many times waters appears in the Old Testament? Hundreds. 
Oh, man. And it's all the same word. There's no, like, this is a different thing. This is not a different thing. This is, it's the same word across the board. It's really frustrating. If you want to talk about the Jordan River and the water in the Jordan River, it's the same thing as talking about the flood or talking about somebody getting a drink. You know what that means as far as the context of this particular passage and the significance of the water? It's water. <laughs> but what about still? And this is what got exciting for me. This is the only time in the entire Bible where this word's used. This particular word for still is only used here. You want to know what it means? This gets pretty cool pretty quickly. You want to know what it means? I'm asking, do you want to know? Because I can tell you if you want to know, but I don't have to. And here's the thing. Pause right there. We are so thirsty, aren't we? Aren't we? What are we filling ourselves with? That's better than what the shepherd has for us. Because there isn't any place else to, and we'll get there, restore the soul. The problem is we've never been taught to sit down and study the Scripture, to sit down and actually meet, figure out what it means to get into the Bible and hear what God has to say to us in the first person, to me. And when it comes to serving and being here and when it comes to pouring out into other people, Travis said it, it's not about you. But guess what? When it comes time to sit alone with the God of all creation in the Scripture, God has made a way to make it just about you and Him together in an intimate fellowship that can't be compared. And that's really cool. One of my favorite stories about quiet time. There's a guy from the Navigators who's a national leader right now, and he goes through, and I know, I'm, again, I'm running short, so I apologize, but not sorry. Um, he came to Christ as a, as a high schooler, and the pastor, so the youth pastor looked at him and said, you know what you got to do? you got to start having a quiet time. And I said, oh, yeah, I'll go have a quiet time. So the next day, he gets up early in the morning, and he goes out into his yard, and he sits under a tree How long could you do it? Sit under a tree, being quiet. I'm a fidget. I'm done. About two minutes. So he goes through the rest of his I'm not doing this again. It's a waste of time doing a quiet time. You know why? He had no idea what it was. He graduates from high school, goes on to college. His first week of college, he runs into some, high school, some upper class guys. And by the way, folks, if you're not concerned about your kids in college, hear this. Like any other college student, who was asked to do something by an upperclassman, when he was asked to go have a quiet time with a bunch of guys, he said, yeah, sure, whatever. Let's go. That makes you feel good, doesn't it? They said, hey, you guys, want, you want to get together and have a quiet time? Now I get to go sit under a tree with a bunch of guys. Sounds like fun. So he shows up the next morning for, for quiet time with the guys, and they sit down, and they all pull their Bibles out, and he goes, oh, well, yeah, of course, we're going to spend quiet. He'd never been taught. And so he just quit because he felt dumb asking the question, how do I do this? What does that mean I don't have a quiet time? Please don't assume that people know. One of the reasons I'm talking this morning is that we're not going to assume that you know. 60-80% of pastors don't know what this is. How can we expect you to? And please don't hear this as condemnation. The only reason I know is because somebody told me. 
Oh, we're already here. Sorry. Do you want to know what it means, that word? Coming back to it? It's only used once in all Scripture, and it's a figurative term. And it means that that still is a place of consolation. We don't necessarily know that word anymore in regards to, because everybody gets a trophy. They used to give a consolation prize to the person who comes in last because typically they feel really bad. And so what's the purpose of the consolation prize? To make them feel better. We think this psalm gets dark when it starts talking about the valley of the shadow of death. The idea of the still waters is a place for us to go when we're already broken. And coincidentally, and what's really fascinating about this is the only context that this is used in is around the idea of matrimony. Did that sink in yet? This is only used at a level of intimacy consistent with matrimony, with marriage. A love relationship deep. Intimacy that's different than anything else you know, than anybody else you know. If we're going to talk about being beside the still waters, where we are led by our shepherd, it's going to be an intimate, filling, consolative, what's the word? Place of consolation. A place to be consoled. How cool is that of our shepherd to provide that place? A place not just to lay down and be able to be fed and to eat and to think about the things that we're being fed, but also a place to provide consolation, to be consoled in the hard times by our shepherd. I find that fascinating and amazing. Last question I asked was, what's my soul? Um, And so when I got to Restores My Soul, I cheated a little bit, and I did pull out my phone and went really basic on the meaning of the word restores. So here you go. This is the five-cent version. It probably could have gone deeper, but I didn't. it means to turn back, to retreat, to go home again. It means back. It means to get oneself back again. I was actually pretty okay with that definition. In fact, typically I think of the old the, the show, American Restoration. Anybody seen this? They bring in the old broken down antique thing and they completely fix it up and make it run exactly the way it was intended to when it was created. Yeah, that. So what's my soul? And so I said, is there another place in Scripture where this word for soul is used? And I found it in Genesis 2. And it says, The Lord God formed the man of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a soul. Same word. A living being. The breath of life creates our soul. So these are my notes. The soul is the essence of our being. It's who we are, breathed into by God. The spirit, by contrast, because that was the other question I have. What's the difference between the soul and the spirit? Spirit, by contrast, is the part of the soul that connects with God, a.k.a. our spiritual life. So all that led me here, where I simply sat down and rewrote what I had learned, rewrote the psalm in my own words. It sounds like this. I am as the shepherd. He causes me to not be in want. He makes me lie down in places of flourishing that he works to create for me. I feed on his word and lie down to ruminate on what it says. I follow him to a place of refreshment and consolation to experience the intimacy and love of the bridegroom. The Lord who confirms not only his existence, but also his presence, I am, turns back the essence of who I am into what I was meant to be, which is in communion with him.
And that takes me the first sentence into verse 3 of Psalm 23 over the course of the last 10 days. The psalm that I already know so well because I've grown up in it and with it that can't possibly have anything new to say to me. Fix that fantasy team, man. Get it done. (laughs) How cool is this? But training is needed, yes? This is one way. And they're going to cringe a little bit, but I talked to our deacons the other night and I showed them a different way so that they could start meeting together. Start getting closer to the summit on this journey. And I would push that each step of the way, whether it is come and see, whether it is follow me, whether it is abide in me, or whether, or whether it is be with me or re- abide in me, remain with me. Time alone with the shepherd as a sheep is required for growth. If it's just us trying harder, we're going to suck the life out of this place. This is just empty demands for the sake of saying, you're not qualified to be able to do that, 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 that. No. Does any of what we just talked about sound like it's depressing or hard or aggravating? No, this is life. It's amazing. It's life-giving. But because there's training needed, we're going to offer a way to train you. So starting in the first week of October, during the second service, anybody who is interested in being trained on how to study the Scripture, how to get more out of their time alone with God, what it looks like to find and understand and implement the marks of a disciple, I'll be running a class over here on what that looks like. Not because I got it all together and I've got it all figured out, but because somebody has taught me. And in an attempt to make sure that we are able to spread out to the right and to the left and to not hold back as we go into our community and to push the gospel forward, I want as many of you as possible immersed in Scripture in a way that is not a to-do list, but a way that gives life in ways you've never known before. I know that I'm way over time, but I'd like to pray with you. Father God, thank you that you are the shepherd and that I am not. Lord, thank you for the ways that you minister to us, for your provision in providing places of rest, but also in the provision of your word. Lord, thank you for the intimacy of the relationship you offer us. Lord, thank you for the restoration of that which is broken in my soul. Lord, would you allow me to have the humility to remove myself in all the places where I try to be the shepherd and insert you that I might be full. In Jesus' name, amen.